Good morning. You're listening to WNHHLP 103.5 FM, New Haven's home for community radio. Also streaming live at newhavenindependent.org. I'm Mubaraka Ibrahim, and you are listening to Mornings with Mubaraka, where we talk about national issues from a local level through a lens of diversity. Um, and I would like to say, welcome, welcome, welcome this morning. It is Wednesday, February the 15th, and I am going to uh, start the show off by wishing a very happy, happy birthday to my husband of 25 years, Shafiq Abdusabor. He is the big five old today, y'all. He is 50, half a century. Yes, I'm going to catch him out there like that. But <laughs> I hope he have a, has a wonderful, wonderful day. We have some um, exciting stuff planned uh, to pamper him a little today. So uh, happy birthday to him. Um, and so now that I did my little shout out, let's get into the show that I am excited that I have been waiting to have this show. So today we are talking about being Muslim, being American, being um, and how culture and how those two cultures intersect. And the new book by Suad Abdul Kabir, Muslim Cool, Race, Religion and Hip Hop in the United States. Um, Suad, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. I'm happy to be here. I am really excited. You know, we've been trying to get you on for a minute, but (laughs) I am so excited to actually have this show and have this discussion. It is always a great discussion every time I have you on the show. So let me tell you a little bit about Suad. Suad is a scholar actor artist and activist who uses anthropology and performance to explore the intersections of race and popular culture. She received her PhD in cultural anthropology from Princeton University and is a graduate from the School of Foreign Service at Georgetown University and has an Islamic studies diploma from the Institute at Abi Noor University in Damascus, Syria. Suad leads a digital humanities project um, www.sapolosquare.com, the first website dedicated to the comprehensive documentation and analysis of the African-American Muslim experience. She is the author of the newly released Muslim Cool, Race, Religion, Hip Hop in the United States. Um, and so I, and today we are going to talk about the new book and what a groundbreaking book it is. Um, it is a groundbreaking. So the book is a groundbreaking study of race, religion, and popular culture in the 21st century. Um, this, I think, is a book that has been long time coming. I think that this is a perfect time in the political uh, uh, environment that we are in to actually have this book and have this discussion. So, so I, let's talk a little bit Tell me a little bit first or tell the audience a little bit first about you. You are Afro-Latino is how you identify yourself, correct? Yes, I, I identify myself as black um, and as Latina. Yeah. Okay, so uh, black and Latina and you grew up Muslim in America. Yes, I grew up Muslim in Brooklyn, New York. Brooklyn represent. Um, and... Um, I'm the product of, you know, um, communities of Black and Latinx Muslims um, in New York City, but also in the United States, who, you know, um, converted from Christianity to Islam as a way of 
I'm really um, being committed to Black liberation and as a way of also building their own sense of self and community empowerment. And so I grew up um, raised by um, these people who, uh, you know, who, who really had, had a significant impact, not just on my own life, but also on the lives of those around them and on the sort of America and the world more broadly. Um, yeah. So that's, that's kind of me. And I, I did, uh, you know, I was like a product of Islamic school, like private Islamic school, um, public high school. Um, and also, like you mentioned, um, both Georgetown and Princeton. And also I, spent, I spent, had a stint, a short stint in Damascus at Abbey North, too. And, and tell me a little, so you, I consider you kind of like specializing in, uh, in African-American Muslim uh, uh, history and current affairs. Is that something that you've always knew that, you, that 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 was where you wanted to make your mark? How did this idea of specializing um, yeah, in this area come yeah, about mean, for you? Yeah, so I mean, I would say that um, I do specialize in sort of questions of race and blackness, um, which includes sort of the African-American experience and also, as well as sort of the African diaspora. And I wouldn't say that, you know, when I was like five, I was like, oh my God, I wouldn't sort of specialize in this kind of work. Um, But I will say that, again, because of who raised me, the community, and my mother in particular, who, you know, has, who came from a black nationalist and a pan Africanist kind of activist background before she became Muslim, but also continued to be um, sort of concerned about those sorts of things and about questions of inequality, systemic inequality both here and abroad, because that was sort of the, those were the conversations, you know, around a dinner table type thing um, that were happening in my household and in the communities I was in. So it's not a far dump, you know, to say that I would actually have ended up sort of doing this for my career. Um, but I think part of that choice or part of my, the ways in which I ended up sort of really focusing professionally around these questions had a lot to do with um, the ways in which uh, Muslims and Black people in particular are sort of talked about in um, kind of the broad, broader society. And so particularly sort of after 9-11, there was a lot more conversation about Muslims, but this time the conversation that was about Muslims really focused on sort of this idea of Muslims as foreign and as immigrants, and those are not the Muslims that I came from, right? It's the Muslims that I uh, communities I came from really absent. And so I was sort of concerned about that, not just because I wanted to be like, oh, look, all diversity is Muslim, which is important, but also because I think this community has um, made, and has made and continues to make really important contributions to questions of how do we respond to inequality, which I think are really important. And so wanting to, you know, sort of intervene um, in, in this kind of, uh, this discourse that kind of puts Muslims as foreign and immigrants um, kind of propelled me. Something, something sort of post 9-11, that kind of thing kind of propelled me. And likewise with Black people, you know, the way in which people talk about Black people like we're monolithic, like we don't have ethnicity. Like one of the reasons why I make a point to identify that I'm also a Latina is because it's not, because Latina isn't a racial, it's not a racial group, right? It's about ethnicity. Um, it's about language and culture and all sorts of things. And Black people have that. You know? okay. <laughs> so, yeah. I think, you know, and black people aren't all Christian, you know, and mm-hmm. so I think there's also this kind of really dynamic diversity amongst people that we call black that was also often missing. Um, and also important to, um, important to sort of say something about, again, not just to say, oh, black people are diverse, 
but also to say what that, what's meaningful about the diversity, right? Mm-hmm. And part of what's meaningful is that Black people have, have sort of, have, all, have been global. And typically, we think of Blackness as kind of really local. And mm-hmm. I think it's important to recognize how global it is and the power that comes with that. And in and is that the kind of like what spurred you to actually write this book, particularly about Muslim cool? So, so let's talk a little bit about the book. So the book Muslim cool doesn't just deal with being black. Correct. It just deals with um, the, the sense that I got uh, in reading it is that it's talking about kind of like navigating that intersection between being Muslim and being black. And I I opened up the show saying that it's such a perfect time for this discussion because we are in a period where uh, I feel like that the idea of being Muslim is kind of like trying, there is this attempt to make it a monolith, to not recognize the differences between that, that, Muslims themselves have um and is your book kind of an attempt to 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 change that narrative yeah I mean I think so part of kind of what what the book is so the book so Muslim cool um is a term that I kind of um uh, use to describe a way of thinking about and a way of being Muslim in the United States that engages blackness through hip-hop to counter anti-blackness that we find in Muslim communities, and also in the broader U.S. society. And part of what's important about sort of this idea of Muslim school, with, with regard to your question about um, sort of diversity, is that oftentimes, again, because there's this incessant or this kind of preoccupation or even fetishization of Muslims as foreign immigrants, Blackness, in terms of Black experience and culture, also this conversations about who Black people are, all of that Blackness, Blackness has a centrality to what it means to be Muslim in this country that's often missed because of the way of talking about Muslims as if they are not black and never are black. And so part of what Muslim Cool does is it really sort of um, challenges that idea um, by, by, by showing how central blackness actually is to the experience, to what we, whatever, what we call Islam in the United States. It's, 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 one of the arguments I make is that it's central to both sort of the history of Islam in the United States also individual identities of Muslims, whether they're black or not, um, inter-ethnic relationships between Muslims, as well as the ways in which Muslims in the United States engage the state and engage the government. And so part of what the book is trying to lay out is sort of I'm making this argument and then providing all this evidence to sort of prove that point, right? Just in all these different ways, blackness is so important to what, what we call, you know, American Muslims, or who we call American Muslims. Mm. So according to the Council of American Islamic Relations or CARE, there's around 150,000 Muslims. For us here in Connecticut, there is about 12 okay. million Muslims in the United States as a whole, and about one-third of Muslims are of African descent. Um, do you think that, that just that statistic alone is glossed over or overlooked? when we talk about Islam in America as um, I kind of feel like it's a way of by not recognizing that uh, you can make Islam the other 
as opposed to making it an integral part because I don't think anybody would well not a lot of people can can uh without <laughs> alternate facts anyway <laughs> can deny <laughs> the existence and the the integral part of black people in America but by not mm-hmm. identifying or not recognizing the muslimness of that black then islam can be the other is it do you do, Tell me, what do you think of, is that uh, something that you find that, that is uh, often? Yeah. Yeah I, mean, yeah, I mean, I think that statistic, you know, it's interesting you say that, because I'm trying to think about, you know, that's a, a, you know, this idea that one-third of um, Muslims in the United States are African-American. Um, it's some a statistic I'm really familiar with, and I'm trying to think about, like, who's typically citing that. And I think it was interesting, as I think, like, say, on social media, for example, people are citing that precisely because it's still unknown, right? So like, it's a, so to me, it's a really common fact that I thought, you know, it's like, well, yeah, that's what it is, but it still tends to be relatively unknown. Mm-hmm. And so I think one, right, there, there is the one, no, people don't, may not still really know that or understand that. You know, one of the things that I think is kind of interesting that I've been writing about recently, um, we have, you know, the passing of Muhammad Ali and, um, you know, this thing happened, you know, when he died, where sort of right, like a few months before he died, who is now the current president, he, um, when the former president, Obama, made this claim sort of, sort of, I think he was like sort of celebrating kind of Muslim, um, Muslim sports heroes, I think. This is what was kind of this thing that Obama was doing. And the current president was sort of, you know, kind of castigating him for that, saying there could be no Muslim sports heroes in the United States. And then when Muhammad Ali died, he's like, oh, my goodness, you know, Muhammad Ali was such a great person. And, you know, we, um, you know, we have to sort of honor him, which, you know, everyone was like, eh, you know, how does that work? You know? and, um, and I think part of that works is precisely because this is a way in which that intersection of being black and Muslim, right, is really, really hidden for a lot of people um, in terms of that. Even someone like Donald Trump, right, it's, it's really, really hidden um, and, and I think you're right. And it's not hidden on accident, right? So it's not just a matter of, oh, you know, we don't know. We just don't know it, right? Um, it's hidden by design. And one of the things that I argue also in my book is that part of the reason for that is that, you know, the c- current United States as a whole, irrespective of whoever's president, you know, really pushes this narrative of multiculturalism, right? It used to be a melting pot. Maybe now it's a salad bowl. But this idea that, you know, People in the United States come from a variety of backgrounds, and that's kind of what makes America, America. But one of the things that that kind of multiculturalism does is it doesn't actually work. It doesn't, it doesn't work well with what we call intersectionality, right? It doesn't know how to intersect people. So it knows how to say, okay, well, there are black people, and there are white people, and there are Christians, and there are Muslims, you know, <laughs> not, right? And so people who sort of have multiple identities, right, that overlap and intersect, don't really work well within that sort of the understanding of multiculturalism. And so that's one thing. And then secondly, you know, multiculturalism in the United States is also still hierarchical. So even though we might say, okay, there are all these different people of different colors and languages and religions here in the United States, that doesn't mean that whiteness and Christian identity is not still the most privileged identity to have, right? So yeah, we have sort of black Muslims and Hindus and Sikhs and Buddhists, but Christianity is still privileged. And we have, you know, blacks and Latinos and this, but whiteness is still privileged. And so while you have so this is all this is going on at the same time, and then when you enter the Muslim, right, who plays this role 
as a kind of racial group, not black or white, but quote unquote brown, brown and foreign, and therefore always suspect, right? They may be a potential threat. And so I think all of this, so I think so the ways in which someone like Muhammad Ali, who not only is was black and Muslim, but like part of why we know who Muhammad Ali is, is precisely because he was a black Muslim, right? It was precisely because of the ways his embrace of Islam sort of changed his attitude around politics, why he, um, why he um, did not sort of go through the Vietnam War, why he kind of lost his title, how he came back. I mean, the reason, the precise reason why Muhammad Ali is a quote-unquote hero is because he's a black Muslim, right? Mm. But, and again, in the kind of frameworks of multiculturalism, where you have to be this or that, and whiteness is still privileged, you know, there's no room for that, right? Because it, then it really kind of, I think, it, undo, it undoes a lot of the work that's been sort of set in place to kind of create um, create racial groups and racial hierarchies. So one of the things that I the, that I have a conversation about a lot with people is um, is that notion of putting people in a box. Like when being black and Muslim, it's almost like wherever you are, you are people try to force you to be one or the other. If I'm black, then my Muslimness is dimmed. And if I'm Muslim, then my blackness is dimmed. It happens in the Muslim community. It happens outside of the Muslim community. And that's one of the things that I notice around the death of Muhammad Ali. As I'm on Facebook, you know, I have there's lots of lots of Muslims who would not otherwise celebrate anything about blackness right but they want to attach themselves to Muhammad Ali because he was Muslim and then there are people again who would not attach themselves or celebrate anything about being Muslim people kind of like 45 who will then attach themselves to him as an American or as or black people attaching themselves to him as being black why do you think that there is that lack of being able to see and recognize the intersection intersectionality that people are it kind of like in, together instead of trying to put people or mm-hmm. make people choose which one. Right. Well, I mean, I guess the short answer to that is white supremacy. I don't know. <laughs> that's, um, that's sufficient. But I mean, but seriously though, I mean, I mean, this is how, I mean, this is really how white supremacy operates. Right. So, you know, white supremacy is a term that we use to describe um, sort of, um, political, economic, sort of social systems that create um, sort of, that create privilege, right, for people who are white and then disadvantage for those who are not. And I think part of what white supremacy also does is it creates this kind of ideal or these norms, right? So the best kind of person, like the best kind of America, right, is a sort of a white Christian sort of middle class and male, really, person, right? This is the best kind of person. And everyone else, um, has to be, um, everyone else is sort of less than. Now, even those categories, white, Christian, male, middle class, those are intersectional categories, right? Like that's not, those are, those aren't describing all the same thing. They're describing race, they're describing class and gender um, and religion. But because that becomes what's normal, right, it, it's sort of unmarked. It doesn't, it's like unremarkable, right? It's just, that's just what it is. So therefore anyone who doesn't, right, kind of fit that, right, then sort of, which is intersectionality, they say someone who is white, middle class, Christian, and a woman, for example, right, anyone who sort of kind of doesn't fit all those categories, right, 
doesn't fit, quite frankly. <laughs> it really doesn't fit. And that is sort of, and if you don't fit, then the idea is that you don't belong or you're less than, or, there's, or there are reasons to kind of kick you out of sort of, sort of, 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 of resources and opportunities, right? That becomes reason to keep you out. So I think, I think, so I think for that reason then, right, you have, it's, it's difficult, right? Um, it's, it's almost, it, it seems really, it shouldn't be difficult, right? Because, you know, I'm an anthropologist and a lot of what we do in terms of work is that we think about, we think about everyday life, you know, how people doing things, like sort of everyday life. And in our everyday, our everyday lives, we are intersectional, right? We're not choosing, like, I'm black here and I'm Muslim here and I'm female here and this kind of thing. No, we just kind of, we live in a body right, that has all these <laughs> things attached to it and we kind of move in the world. But, you know, when there's a system that's really set up to sort of, sort of for, to, to create sort of dominance of one group over the other, you know, um, to sort of, sort of um, give privilege and disadvantage when that's the system, then I think part of what happens as a result of that is that we have to have categories that are very specific and they cannot overlap, right? Mm. Because overlapping categories also create solidarity. So if you see yourself, right, if I'm, if I'm a black person who's also Muslim, then I'm, then I'm, then I am sort of a bridge, right, of solidarity between mm. all black people and all Muslim people, you know, because all black people are Muslim and all Muslims are black. Right. And that kind of solidarity is a threat to white supremacy, mm. right? Because what happens then is that people who are marginalized and disadvantaged are going to come together to really attack the system of white supremacy. And that's a threat. So we keep people thinking, I'm just this, or I'm just that, then they don't work together. Mm -hmm. Then they don't make bridges, right? And then the system can perpetuate itself. Wow. If you're just tuning in, you're listening to WNHHLP 103.5 FM, New Haven's home for community radio, also streaming live at newhavenindependent.org. I'm Mubaraka Ibrahim, and this is Mornings with Mubaraka. And we are talking with Suad Abdul Kabir, author of Muslim Cool, Race, Religion, and Hip Hop in the United States. One of the things that one of the the the, the interesting chapters that I found um, in in your book was the one about dress and kind of like uh, there's a there's a really intriguing picture of a young woman who with three uh, versions of how Muslim women dress <laughs> behind her. And she's choosing kind of like you choosing your identity. So let's talk a little bit about some of the young people that you interacted with um, along your research for your book and how, what was some of the things when it comes, let's talk about dress in particular. What was some of the things that mm -hmm. you found that, that people had to navigate in particularly Muslim women because there's more mm -hmm. kind of like expectations and requirements for Muslim women. What was some of the, the, the common thing that, that people had to navigate both mentally and physically in, in, in how they choose mm -hmm. to dress? Yeah. So, um, yeah. So the, I did my field, my field research, right. Um, primarily in Chicago, Illinois. I also did some work um, in New York and the California Bay area and also a small trip to the UK. Um, and in my work, I worked with um, what I called young Muslims, and there were sort of two sets of them. So there were folks who were sort of 18 to their mid-20s, and then folks who were sort of late 20s to sort of mid-30s, so two different groups of people. And I call them sort of in, um, in uh, what you call that place, in uh, anthropological speak, right, people call them interlocutors. 
I call them my teachers, right? Because I learned from their experiences to come to my own conclusions. And these teachers, right, so it's 18 to the mid-30s, and they were diverse in terms of race and ethnicity. So um, primarily African-American and South Asian, but also Arab-Americans and people who are sort of middle class and maybe sort of working in middle class. So these young people were engaging hip-hop. Right? They were engaged, particularly initially, I got, they were part of this organization based in Chicago called the Inner City Muslim Action Network, EMAN, mm-hmm. which is a Muslim-run nonprofit on the southwest side of Chicago that does a lot of work around um, some ad, ad, advocacy for um, the people in the neighborhood who are Black and Mexican-Americans, um, uh, sort of uh, ser- social services they provide, and then also they have this sort of work around art and culture. So it's kind of this idea of art and activism. Mm-hmm. And so the young people that I was working with, like, this is what they were doing. They were sort of art activists, art, art-based activists. Now, and the art in particular that they were engaging with hip-hop. Now, what does that mean then? What does it mean, particularly for people who are not Black, um, to engage hip-hop, which is um, a kind of popular cultural form that we associate oftentimes with Black people, right? Even though hip-hop, you know, is meaningful around the world. There's a way in which here in the U.S. is typically sort of associated with Black people. And so what does it mean to do that, particularly because hip-hop has style, you know? So there are ways of dress that go along with sort of hip-hop music and culture. So there are these ways of dress that go along with hip-hop music and culture that are therefore quote-unquote Black, and then you're a non-Black person and you might want to wear them, right? So then what happens is that sort of cultural appropriation, you know, are you just kind of, you know, taking on somebody's style, you know, um, and and kind of using it and throw it away once you're done with this kind of thing, or is there something more meaningful happening? And so part of what I sort of discussed in the book was there's actually something more meaningful happening. So what you were referring to was um, a scene from my performance piece, sample piece of Muslim Life, in which I have a young woman who's a non-Black woman who's deciding what, she doesn't wear a headscarf, but she's deciding what kind of scarf she's going to wear. And she chooses between three different styles. One is called traditional, which sort of which you might find someone wearing, say, in the Persian Gulf. Um, the other one is called um, hijabi light, which is something you probably might see like on a college campus. And then the last uh, model is called hijabi. And this woman was sort of wearing kind of sort of hip hop gear, and her scarf was tied in the bun to the back of the head. And that was important because and that. Scarf style is what we might call an Afro-diasporic style. So it's a style of head covering that you're going to find women of African descent throughout the diaspora wearing. But Black Muslim women, when they wear it, they also make it sort of religiously okay, right? Like if you want to, what people call hijab, if you want to wear hijab, you can wear your scarf this way, and it's also a hijab. Mm. And so this then becomes an opportunity for women, Black and non-Black, to, you know, kind of be involved in hip-hop, and hip-hop music and culture as Muslim women are in a way that's legitimate, at least to them. But it's contested, right? Because while for Black Muslim women, that headscarf style is legitimate, while for the young women I was working with who were involved in hip-hop activism, that was legitimate. Because in Muslim communities there is anti-Blackness, other Muslims say that's illegitimate. Like, that is not a proper way of covering and so when these women are doing that, then they're navigating that, right? They're navigating both what does it mean for, for non-Black women? What does it mean to engage Black culture? So what um, is, let me, your style? let me ask you, and what then, is the, what is the, so, so 
before we get on another topic, is the idea of cultural appropriation even a part of the thinking process when people are who are non-black who are choosing a hip hop style or uh, the hood jabby style, as you put it? Is that is that an issue or is it more of, you know, they just feel an affinity to it and it's not about cultural appropriation? No, I mean, these, the folks that I work with um, recognize the issue of cultural appropriation because they're activists, right? So they're activists who are um, engaged in um, sort of social justice work, and so they're learning about this, and they recognize this. There's one woman in particular, um, she's Pakistani-American, that I talk about in the book, who first saw the style and wanted to work because she thought it was cool, you know? <laughs> like, she was, you know, maybe, I, I think she said something like, I think I saw Erica Badu wearing that, and so I thought it was cool. But she recognized that there, it is tied to a culture and to a history that's not her own, at least not immediately. And so she was cautious. Um, but over time, she felt more comfortable sort of doing it. And, and I think her, the reason why she felt more comfortable is because she actually had real relationships, relationships with Black people and Black Muslims. Like it, they weren't just kind of images on her TV screen, right? She wasn't just copying them, but she was in relationship with them. And she was dedicating sort of her time and effort to issues that concern those communities as well. And so it doesn't, so, the, so this kind of cultural appropriation thing is not something that you can like completely escape. But it is something you can kind of mediate, right? It doesn't just have to be, I'm going to take this. It can be like, I'm going to do this and show respect to where it came from. And so for the young Muslims that I was working with in terms of like Muslim pool, that's what they were doing. They recognized this is not quote unquote mine, but if I'm going to engage it, I have to do this in a way that's respectful you know, for, to where it came from. Mm, okay. Now tell me a little bit about um, the young men that, that you were you're working with. Is there any navigation of the way that they dress um, their identity and and are they concerned about it reflecting their identity as Muslim as opposed to just kind of like um, as just being black or being whatever their Mm -hmm. ethnicity is? Is there and I've always actually wondered this for young Muslim men do they seek in any way to because their their dress is not kind of like a visual representation of being Muslim the way that women dress are? So how do they navigate that uh, identifying themselves as Muslim through their dress? Or is it did you find that that even be be a concern for them? Yeah, so I'll just talk about one um, specific example from the book. So one of the chapters of the book um, focus on a group of men that I call Muslim dandies. Um, and dandies, um, and, and what they're doing, kind of the idea of dandyism in general, is this idea of men who are really sort of meticulous and self-conscious about what they wear as a broad category. Um, but in terms of black men in particular, black dandyism becomes this way of using dress to kind of challenge sort of ideas of anti-blackness. And so, and the kinds of dress to use are typically styles that are associated with people who have power. So in the case of the contemporary black dandyism, oftentimes what you'll find is the kind of sort of suiting, you know, sort of three-piece suits and these kind of suits that you might associate with sort of high European or high American culture. They're wearing these suits, right? They're black men who are putting these on and, and they're, and they're mix, mixing them up. So maybe they're doing different types of colors that wouldn't normally be seen, you know, kind of for folks who wear those clothes. But they're doing that to challenge, right, this notion specifically of black men as thugs. This is one thing. So... 
in my own work, I found Muslim men who were sort of also taking on this dandy style. And they were taking on this dandy style, again, to one, challenge, right, ideas of black men as thugs, but also challenge um, ideas in Muslim communities that you couldn't be authoritative as a Muslim um, if you dressed like that, or if you dressed quote-unquote Western, or really like white people. If you wanted to be authoritative, you had to wear something that looked like it came from someplace else. So maybe it's like a thobe from the Middle East or a shalwar kameez from the Indian subcontinent. You had to wear those clothes to be authoritative, you know, to be pious. I call it in the book pious respectability, right? So in order to be respectable and pious, you have to dress that kind of way. And so what they're doing is saying, well, actually, no. They're saying that, you know, there's a tradition of dressing well, one, in Muslim tradition, just broadly speaking, so, there, so there's that. There's also traditions of dressing well in Black communities amongst Black men that is their own sort of heritage. Um, and, that, and then also as Black men, um, most of them are Black, as Black men, you know, there's also a way in which we need to hold on to um, kind of our own sort of cultural, you know, sort of context. And so they're dressing, so they're wearing these kind of dandy styles as a way of saying, you know, I am a Muslim. Like, I'm a Muslim, and I can, I can be Muslim in these kinds of clothes, and I can be authoritative, and I can be legitimate as a Muslim in these kinds of clothes. So the dandies are challenging not only sort of anti-blackness in, you know, broader U.S. society, but also as it appears in Muslim communities. Hence, it's Muslim cool. Okay. When, Hello? Yes, yeah. I'm still here. <laughs> um, okay, <laughs> now with... with, with the Muslim dandy style, is that a, is it a, so in the book you talk about it being um, rooted in W.E.B. Du Bois in the Nation of Islam and do, is that something that they are consciously trying to kind of like um, bring back to, to life inside mm -hmm. of their own life? Or is it just a part of kind of like their own interpretation? I think it's, I mean, it's definitely conscious. I mean, one of the things about bandies is that they are very self-conscious of what they're doing. Mm -hmm. And so I think, you know, they will fight, for example, people call it, you know, like suited and booted, right? So they'll fight people who are suited and booted, like the Nation of Islam. Now, the dandy style is a bit more flamboyant, right, than the Nation of Islam. And so therefore, um, they're also kind of taking some uh, inspiration from folks from the other kind of spectrum, sort of like pimps and hustlers, like there's some of that too in terms of the flamboyance. But they definitely will say, like, you know, the Nation of Islam, they always look clean. And that was really important. You know, many of these men, like they how they came to Islam is they came through hip hop, right? It was hearing about Islam through hip hop that made them convert to Islam. And when they heard about Islam through hip hop, they were hearing about the nation of Islam and mm. the fruit of Islam and like this kind of history, right? They were hearing about these kinds of things. And so this is very much is kind of very conscious in, in their thinking, you know, well, let me, you know, I'm going to, we're going to dress this way and we're going to draw on this specifically. Um, I talk about Du Bois um, um, in the book, although Du Bois is not someone that they brought up. So that's something that I kind of bring to the conversation um, because Du Bois um, himself, right, had a kind of dandy style, like in his work. And for Du Bois, like everything that he did, you know, was very much about trying to, um, respond to the sort of racial inequality that black people face. And so dress was also a site of that. It was a place where you could do that. And so Du Bois was doing that too. He was kind of like, you know, 
what we call a race man, right? So he was really concerned about the race of black people and really trying to push, he was really trying to do a lot of anti-racist work. And so I think the same is true with these men as well, um, in that they are concerned about what's happening to black people and they're concerned about issues of racial inequality and they're using their dress as a way to respond to that, both as a way, like I said, to sort of counter the ways in which in Muslim communities, Things that are black are sort of already, already and always un-Islamic, just on GP, but also um, just also sort of wanting to make sure that as Muslims who are black, they're still connected to black communities, right? Mm-hmm. And so wanting to dress in ways that also resonate with black people, you know, not just so not just challenging anti-blackness amongst Muslims, but also saying to black people that you know I'm your brother. Mm-hmm. Absolutely, and you and you brought up a a, a really good which was actually the the next thing that I wanted to to, to ask you about is we as Islam and hip hop. So one of the I would say off the so off the back of kind of like a, an automated response, many people will be like, what in the world does Islam has to do with hip hop? Hip hop seems so antithetical to what Muslim values are. Mm-hmm. How does that work? So tell us a little bit about the history of how Islam and hip hop merges. Yeah, no, definitely. Yeah, so uh, you're right. A lot of people think, oh, that's like they're like when they hear about it, they're just, like they're really perplexed. <laughs> like, <laughs> how does that come together? Right. And of course, that's because they don't know a ton about Islam and they don't know a ton about hip hop. And so I think that's what will make it sort of perplexing to you. But when you know more, um, it's really kind of you know sort of it's really sort of not that um not that sort of confusing. So part of what happens is that you know hip hop emerges right in the late '60s, early '70s. Um, in urban communities, particularly New York City is kind of when it first kind of emerges, um, amongst um, sort of young, what we would call people of the African diaspora. So there are folks who have roots in the, in the U.S. South. There are folks who have roots in the English and the Spanish-speaking Caribbean. And they're all sort of coming together um, as working class sort of Black and Latinx people in, in, in the Bronx, um, in the Bronx which is in New York City. And they're coming and at the time in which they're sort of coming together and creating hip-hop music and culture, they're, they're sort of also the inheritors or the kind of beneficiaries of the Black Power movement, right? And, you know, Black Power was sort of this idea of really kind of um, recognizing sort of Black struggle and, and asking for sort of unity amongst Black people to sort of work together to eliminate sort of inequality and white supremacy. And Black Muslims are really important, right, to Black problems, particularly Malcolm X as a sort of a symbol of that, you know. Yeah. He, um, his teachings, his, his activism, you know, his, his style, you know, his, uh, everything about him really sort of resonates. So when you look at early hip-hop history, people who are sort of first beginning to hip-hop music will say things like, you know, I used to listen to the Nation of Islam and what Elijah Muhammad was saying, you know, about, you know, clean yourself up. Or I would listen to Malcolm X, so these kinds of things, right? Mm-hmm. And so... One of the things, the claim that I make in the book is that, you know, hip-hop has ethics. People don't think that. People think hip-hop is just about, I don't know, money and sex and drugs, right? But no, <laughs> like hip-hop actually... At know, least it didn't start off ethics. that way. It didn't start right? off that way. Hip-hop, hip-hop has ethics. Um, and by ethics, I mean hip-hop sort of articulates a way of living in the world that's concerned about just not the individual, but community, right? Mm-hmm. And those ethics, I say, come directly from Black Muslims, from the impact that these, that these, that the, how Black Muslims talk about sort of, um, um, I, I, 
particularly I use the term knowledge of self, right? So this idea of having knowledge of self, which people call the fifth element of hip hop, mm-hmm. in addition to sort of dance and, and singing and DJing and graffiti, sort of the fifth element, knowledge. And so knowledge of self really is about that. It's about how to, how to live in the world in a way that's ethic, you know, how to have virtue, how to be righteous. Mm-hmm. And all those kinds of sort of things come from sort of Black Islam or Black Muslim practice shaping, right, sort of how hip-hop develops and emerges. And particularly, we see a lot of this in what they call the golden age of hip-hop, right? So in the late 80s and early 90s, a lot of this, if you find all these references, you know, I like to say things like, for example, you know, every, like um, one example could be, for example, um, Lauren Hill and her, her album, The Miseducation of Lauren, she has a song called Duop. And at the beginning of the song, she says, don't forget about the Dean, the Sadat al-Mustaqeen. This is one of the intros to her song, right? And so, really? she, so Dean is an Arabic term that um, refers to sort of way of life or religion. And Sadat al-Mustaqeen is also an Arabic term that comes from the first, um, or you find it particularly in the first chapter of the Quran, um, and it means the straight path, right? And so she's making these references. Now, Lauren is not a Muslim, right? Mm-hmm. But the song itself is, is about is what... Um, one of my teachers, Pop Master Fable, he called them warning songs, right? Songs that kind of warn people about social ills and try to encourage people to live ethically. Mm-hmm. So this song, Duop, is basically that kind of song. And she intros that song with these references to sort of Islamic ideas, particularly Sunni Islamic ideas. Mm-hmm. Um, you also find other sort of language and dress and style, questions of diet, you know, what am I eating? You know, like there's a song by Paris one called Beef, where he was telling people not to eat beef. And he was citing, right? Um, Elijah Muhammad in the Nation of Islam as a reason why the like, beef is not good for you in terms of your health, right? So all these different kinds of ways we see and these, and, we also see stuff that and these are are, are yeah. people who have not said that they are Muslim. I mean, sometimes yeah. So Karis once said he's Muslim. Lauren has said she's Muslim. Other people have. So someone like um, Rakim or um, Yasin Bey, you know, these people are Muslim. So okay. it's a range, right? But the point here is that this impact of this ethical imperative of that Islam made to hip hop is something that people pick up whether they're Muslim or not. Right. right. Because it's a part of hip hop. You know, it's, this is what it means to be like what we call a hip hop. So head. it's you an know, influence. So I asked that question just to clarify for myself is it's a, it's the Islamic influence is almost embedded in the culture and in the communities and in the circles of hip hop. And so it comes out inside of the music and inside of the hip hop ethics, as you say, um, even when people have not claimed Islam as a religion. Right, and it's not, it's not almost, it is. Right? Okay. So it's not almost okay. that it is, that it is, right? Um, and so it is. And so you continue to see it all the time. Like, even recently, um, Common just put out an album called, um, Common is a hip-hop artist from Chicago, um, not a Muslim, and his he had a new album came out, I think, late last year called, um, uh, what should you call it, uh, Black America Again. And it's one of these albums that's supposed to be you know, like, kind of mobilizing people and educating people about the social issues. And of course, you know, there are all these kind of references. You can see the impact in his music. I mean, we just saw, for example, also, um, and these are Muslim men, but we just saw the Grammys, right? And we had this um, amazing performance by Tropical Quest um, featuring sort of Anderson Pack, who isn't Muslim, but Buster Rhymes and Consequence, who are Muslim. And, and Q-Tip and Ali Shaheed Muhammad of Tropical tra- 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 is also Muslim. And they did this whole sort of medley of songs, really, again, 
speaking to social issues, trying to mobilize people, you know, Q-tip ends it saying resist, 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 right? Mm. And this is, that's exactly what this is. Like, this is Muslim cool. This is the impact of Islam on hip hop. That is, um, we are coming to the last couple of minutes of the show. And I want to thank you, Suad. This was very, very fascinating. And certainly, I encourage everybody to read the book. Can you tell the audience uh, where they can find the book and how they can get in touch with you? Yeah. I mean, you can find the book, you know, where books are sold. (laughs) Um, You can go to um, nyupress.org, which is the publisher, right? You can find it from there. You can also find it on Amazon, Barnes & Noble, Powell's, right, books. Um, And then in some of your local bookstores as well. Um, also, if you want to connect with me, I have a website, Dr. Suad, D-O-C-T-O-R-S-U-A-D.com. And there I also have links to where you can buy the book, but I also have some other materials. Some of the photos um, of both the Muslim dandies and then the headscarf that we talked about earlier, you can see there. There are more photos there. Also, just some more information on some of the key terms and ideas in the book, as well as just other stuff that I've done that you're interested in kind of learning more. Awesome. Awesome. Thank you so much. I appreciate you uh, coming on and calling in to tell us about the new Muslim cool. And I really think that it is such a great, it's going to make a great impact in really uh, um, breaking up this idea of the monolith of uh, both Islam and of blackness, as well as how they intersect with one another and intersect in in hip in the hip hop culture and, and in America. Um, thank you again, and I want to thank everybody for tuning in and listening. You've been listening to Mornings with Mubaraka. I'm Mubaraka Ibrahim on WNHHLP 103.5, New Haven's home for community radio, reminding you to be a voice and not an echo.